Shalom, everyone. Shalom. Today we're continuing in our series, within the series, in our study of the First Corinthians. We're in chapter 15 right now, and we're studying the theme of resurrection. And Paul spends uh, an entire chapter worth of contents explaining how important resurrection is. And we've already studied how powerful this concept of resurrection is, this reality of resurrection is for us. It is this very power that raised Jesus from the dead, and it is that very same power that will raise us from the dead when Jesus comes again. But not just that. Resurrection power is also identified with the destruction of everything that is contrary to the kingdom of God. Everything that has to do with the enemies of God and the enemies of the believers of God, all of these will be destroyed, including death. Death, as you know, is very symbolic of everything that negates anything that is of hope in us. Anybody who has hope cannot come to terms with the fact that it's going to end with death. No, there has to be something on the other side. There has to be either vindication, a blessing, a justification, some kind of life at the end of that. But it can't end with death. And God promises by the resurrection of His Son, Jesus, that everything will be subjected under His rulership in the very end so that God may be all in all. And we also studied last week that we do have this incentive of resurrection hope, which motivates us in all aspects of our Christian life. And that's why Paul oftentimes relates to this concept of death and resurrection through the analogy of baptism. Baptism. And why is baptism concept so important? Because it has to do with the symbol of dying to all that is of the world and sin and living by the mercy and grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. So, resurrection hope has an implication for us in terms of our new life and our conversion. But it also has implications for our sense of call and commission, our life purpose. Paul especially, he felt adamant that it is based upon this resurrection hope that he has a purpose in this life. His, his mission, sense of mission is meaningful and useful and makes sense only if there is a future resurrection. Why is he doing all this? Why is he going through the sort of a death of a dog type of uh, shame and humiliation and persecution at the hands of so many enemies if he's not really fighting for a cause that will have future effect? And of course, uh, the resurrection power will affect us in every aspect of our spiritual life, our lifestyle, the whole process of sanctification, all of that has to do with the motivation that we find in knowing that we will have the future resurrection. And there will be a reward at the very end of all our efforts in Christ. But today, I want to talk about another element that's very much important in our talk of the theme of resurrection. And that is the concept of human body. Because resurrection has to do with human body being raised from the dead. So I want to talk about human body. And in Greek, the term that is used for body here is soma. 
stoma. And here we're going to focus on the present condition of human body and the future state of the human body. So let's read the text and let's try to um, draw the substance from this content. Beginning with verse 35 of chapter 15, all the way to verse 15. Let's read this out loud together. But someone will ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as he has determined, and to each kind of seed he gives its own body. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals have another, birds another, and fish another. There are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. So will it be with resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable, it is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor, it is raised in glory. It is sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body, but it is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural. And after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Now, to begin with, we need to distinguish what Paul is saying here about the physical natural body, that is the earthly body, and the spiritual resurrection body. Okay? Now, when he's talking about this resurrection body, which he calls spiritual body, we're not to understand this as some kind of immaterialistic body, because that doesn't make any sense, because bodies made out of some kind of material in order for it to have the form of a body. So this is not a matter of material versus immaterial. It is not that issue of the body versus spirit. That's not what Paul is talking about. As a matter of fact, all throughout his epistles, he oftentimes uses the term spiritual. In Greek, that's the term pneumaticus. Okay? Pneumaticus doesn't mean that you live only by your spirit. There is spirit faculty. You live not only with your spirit, but with your body. Body that is integrated with your spirit. The whole being. But how as a whole being should we live the life of spirituality? That's what he's talking about. The life that is led by the spirit. Okay. And the natural body that he's talking about is, is the term kos. And this is the term that is used to talk about just the natural 
essence of things that God has made, the substance of things as God has made. So the natural body is that which is earthly, organic, and human condition in this fallen world. Now the spiritual body is simply this, the entire being of a person that comes under complete influence of the Holy Spirit. Just remember that. If we're going to be transformed into a spiritual body, then we are totally under the control and the power of the Spirit. That's how we become spiritual bodies. So when we are differentiating these two concepts of the natural body and the spiritual body, we have to understand that there has to be some kind of continuity, but at the same time we need to admit that there is a sense of discontinuity. And so I want to talk about continuity. Okay? In both of these situations, they are bodily states. They are not just being soulish, but bodily entities. In both of these states, we can obviously recognize the persons. We recognize them in the natural, we can recognize them in the resurrected form. The personality will be there, the relationships will be there, the experiences will be there, and certain portions of memories will be there. I'm sure there will be a lot of sanctification of our memories. We certainly need that. But we must definitely have the memories of the relationships that we have formed here with family members and also members in the body of Christ. So all that's going to continue on. Senses are going to continue on. Because when Jesus rose from the dead, the disciples actually saw him, heard him, they touched him. And I believe that they smelled him in some kind of aromatic way. And perhaps they could have even tasted him. There's something that has to do with five senses that is spiritualized, that is heightened. He was talking, he was walking with them, he was eating with them. And he says, look, flesh and bones. He said to his disciples, especially Thomas, look at my hands and my feet. It is I myself, touch me and see. A ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see that I have. So this is a bodily form. There's some kind of material that is spiritual. I know that sounds very paradoxical to talk about spiritual form or spiritual body or spiritual material, but obviously Jesus exhibited that. He displayed that. But having said that, there's also a real sense of discontinuity between these two bodies. The spiritual body obviously supersedes the dimension of the natural or physical body. This spiritual, resurrected body is able to penetrate through walls. Or maybe he didn't even have to penetrate. He just appeared and disappeared. And there's this transportation that happens and even ascending or soaring. In other words, this resurrected body can fly. It can take into air by the power of the Holy Spirit. This resurrected body is different from the natural body, that it is immortal. It is completely filled with the Holy Spirit and it manifests the fullness of eternal life. When we're talking about eternal life today and the fullness of the Holy Spirit, we're only experiencing a portion of that. Even though the Spirit is inside of us, because of our resistance, because of our 
impurity, the Holy Spirit cannot take 100% possession of us. That is difficult in the present, but in the future, the Holy Spirit will have 100% command over our souls and our bodies. And as a result of that, we will experience the fullness of what it means to have eternal life. So today, I'm going to take the content of this text, and I want to talk about two things. First of all, I want us to be able to distinguish or see the distinction of spiritual body. Okay? And uh, second, I want to really talk about the very nature of this spiritual body. So let's talk about the distinction of the spiritual body. Here, starting with verse 35, Paul considers some analogies from the natural kingdom, the earthly kingdom. And the first thing he does is he takes the analogy from the plant kingdom. And then he moves on to talk of an analogy from the animal kingdom. And then he broadens the horizon. He now wants to take the analogy from the material or the cosmological kingdom. So let's regard what Paul has to say about the analogy from the plant kingdom. Beginning with verse 35, all the way to verse 38. But someone would ask, how are the dead raised? With what kind of body will they come? How foolish! What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. When you sow, you do not plant the body that will be, but just a seed, perhaps of wheat or of something else. But God gives it a body as He has determined, and to each kind of seed He gives His own body. Now here, Paul is taking this analogy of death and resurrection, and he's basically saying that the death process would ultimately lead into some kind of transformation. Even Jesus talked Something similar like this in John chapter 12, verse 24. Very truly I tell you, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many, many seeds. In other words, that seed has to actually experience some kind of death, some kind of metamorphosis from its present state to the finer state. And But if it does go through that transformation, going through death, it will rise into a completely new type of fruition. So he uses the analogy of the seed to signify the natural body. And then he talks about the plant or example like wheat as that representing the spiritual body. So what he is saying is essentially, in terms of the kind of the substance, it is the same. In other words, these two bodies are the same person. It is the same human being. But their form has changed. And in this case, their material has changed. So as you can see, a seed is very different from the fruit or whatever crop that will come out of that. I mean, if two persons, if someone were to hold these two products in their hands and say, did you ever guess that out of this seed will come forth this kind of fruit or this kind of crop? We would never be able to guess that unless we're experts in this area. 
And so Paul is saying it is such of a qualitative change that it is almost unrecognizable. But this is where the analogy is limited. It cannot be completely unrecognizable because we have to recognize that this person is identified with that person. That way, it is me who is resurrected. It is you who is resurrected. We should be able to recognize that. Okay? So in that sense, we're not completely to be differentiated like plant from the seed. But Paul is saying here is that the transformation is so radical, it's as though we are experiencing ourselves in a completely new dimension. That's what he's trying to say. It'll be completely new. That's what we mean by sanctification, glorification. That's what we mean by being utterly transformed into the likeness of Christ. And then he takes the analogy from the animal kingdom in verse 39. Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh. Animals have another. Birds, another. And fish, another. Now, you may have noticed that when Paul is taking all these analogies, he's speaking from his own scientific background, the limited scientific background that he has. He has his certain worldview. And most scholars would agree that he is pretty much consistent with Aristotelian worldview. And uh, so let's not be too critical about this because in our modern science, flesh is flesh, right? Animal flesh, human flesh is the... It's the same type of flesh. It's a cellular, basically. Okay? And the cells would differentiate and then form the tissues and the organs and the organism. And we emerge like this. But we share a commonality with the animals. Did you know that when we compare ourselves with chimpanzees, they say in terms of genetic element, we share 95 plus percentage. There's so much similarity, but what distinguishes us humans from animals is that small difference, which makes all the difference. But anyway, Paul was basically talking in the language of the science of his days. So he's saying, well, you see the fleshly form, and he's using the different word here, not the body. He's talking about the flesh in Greek is sarx, sarx, just flesh, the meat on the bone, so to speak. He's saying, well... Not all flesh is the same. People have one kind of flesh, animals another, birds another, and fish another. And of course, this is the reverse order of the creation story in Genesis 1. So what Paul is basically saying that there is differentiation of the natural body and spiritual body. So if we're talking about in the natural there are differentiation, then how much more would there be differentiation between the natural body and spiritual body in all forms, whether it be of a human body that is transformed into spiritual human body or even animal body that is transformed into spiritual animal body, which we believe that uh, good eschatology would say that it is not just humans, but even the animals and even the vegetations, even the materials of the universe will be transformed into spiritual reality. And then finally, he takes an analogy from the material kingdom, but he's not just talking about the earthly material kingdom. He's talking about the uh, extraterrestrial, the celestial kingdom. And he has this, his own cosmology about this. In verses 40 to 41, there are also heavenly bodies and there are earthly bodies, but the splendor of the heavenly bodies is one kind and the splendor of the earthly bodies is another. The sun has one 
kind of splendor, the moon another, and the stars another, and star differs from star in splendor. Now he's talking about even the inanimate material objects radiating. This kind of aura that comes from the planets, that comes from the stars. That was the cosmology in those days. I'm glad he didn't talk about this in terms of substance. Because we know in modern science, you know, everything's the same. You know, the elements are the same. You know, you may find some rare elements that we cannot find here on Earth in some planets or some stars in, and maybe outside of the Milky Way galaxy. But nonetheless, all of these substances ultimately are the same substances that comprise of the Earth, the planets, even human bodies. So, you know, some scientists would kind of uh, sort of simplistically say, we're made of stardust with a big bang and uh, all these material forms taking place. All that have created ultimately our galaxy and created even the Earth and the planetary system. And out of the Earth, all the materials and then even the living elements. In that sense, in terms of the atomic and even subatomic levels, we all share the same. We know that according to the modern science. But Paul didn't know that. They thought that they actually radiate different type of you know, aura, different kind of radiation. And that's what he's talking about, that there are all these differentiations between these celestial bodies. Now, starting with verse 42, he really gets into the very nature of the spiritual body. Okay? And first of all, he wants to point out that the spiritual body is distinguished by its immortal, glorious, and powerful nature. These are the three terms that you should be familiar with. Immortality, glory, and power. Verses 42 to 44. So will it be with the resurrection of the dead. The body that is sown is perishable. It is raised imperishable. It is sown in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is shown in weakness. It is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. So what distinguishes this spiritual body is immortality. Now, there are some people who believe that when God made us human, He made us to be immortal. As though it's not like an automatic thing. And so, even those who are not Christians, there are certain philosophical beliefs that says we are immortal. We will never expire. Some Hindu concept or even Neoplatonic concepts, the Greek philosophers, they had this notion that we are just Immortality, because we came from immortality. And so therefore we will rise back to immortality. But the proper Christian theology is there's no such thing as immortality unless we are attached to God. Okay? There's not an automatic immortality that happens to our souls. Because Jesus said, I who can destroy the body, I can also destroy your soul. Right? So he has this authority to dictate the destiny of our souls as well. So immortality does not happen automatically. But what Paul is saying is when you're resurrected, then you will take on this whole new nature, and that's what makes us immortal, by the grace of God and the power of the Holy Spirit. 
So immortality has to do with longevity, permanence, and the quality of life, which we call eternal life. Remember, eternal. That concept of eternity is not to be only equated with quantity. It has to be equated with quality. Because hell is eternal too, in one sense. But you don't want that. Hell is not eternal life. If it's going to be life, it has to do with the quality of life. And so we're talking about the heavenly state here. And then Paul talks about the dishonorable and the glorious. The difference between our human body, which is dishonored here on earth. And there are so many ways we are dishonored. I love this term that Paul is using, that our, our bodies are being dishonored. Look at our bodies. Look at our frailty, our sickness, our diseases, you know, cancer. AIDS, you know, all this virus attacking us, and we, we are so dishonored in so many ways. People are literally disfigured, some of them, because of the genetic flaws, but that's the way that people are born. And there's all kinds of calamities that will happen that will tear our limbs apart, our faces can get burnt, all kinds of travesties that can happen that would dishonor our human body. But Paul says, on the day of resurrection, our body will be transformed into glory. And the concept of glory is very, very heavy. Very, very heavy. Literally, in Hebrew, the term is kabod, and in Greek, it's the term doxa. And when I say literally heavy, it is because the definition of kabod and doxa is heavy. Heaviness. But not heaviness in terms of weighing us down, but heaviness in terms of radiation and, and light and brightness and splendor. Heavy, heavy splendor. You know, I don't know whether you've experienced a sense of this glory, perhaps in worship setting, or perhaps when you have some kind of an ecstatic moment and you feel like you are in that glorious heavenly state. I had an experience early on in my Christian life. In my first year at Fuller Seminary, I had a visitation from the Spirit of God who came into my room and he did certain things that was very symbolic. But one of the things that I vividly remember was that he filled my entire body. And he came upon my entire body. So perhaps the entire room was filled with this, what we call the glory cloud of the Lord. It was white. It was thick. It was radiating. It was pulsating. It was like life-giving. I was like in heaven. I could imagine what heaven would be like into all eternity if this that moment of experience is what heaven is. But it's something like that. We are all going to be transformed in, in bodily form that is going to be glorious, that is going to radiate in splendor. And of course, some would theorize that the radiance may be different. Some people may be radiating more than others uh, because of their state of sanctification or glorification. I'm not sure about that, but the thing is, even if that were true, we would be so much more radiating of the glory of God than what we're experiencing today. You know, in the Hindu concept of the reality of things, they believe that everything is radiating with energy. Okay? They talk about the aura, they talk about chakra, they talk about even the breath, the prana, and they talk about how everything's radiating. So they say, Human beings are represented by light, even now. Because we are spiritual beings, not just 
physical beings. So we're radiating with light. Some people radiate more. So if we are perceptive to seeing that, we may be able to see and recognize the light. But just imagine, when we are resurrected, our bodies, every one of us, we are going to be in such a glorious, we will be in the presence of each other's light, literally. And this is none other than the light of the Lord Jesus Christ shining by the power of the Holy Spirit. So let's get more familiar with this term of kabod, and in Greek, doxa. But then, Paul is also talking about this state of weakness versus powerfulness. And here, he uses the word dunamis. And that is almost equivalent to the power of the Holy Spirit. And he says, we are going to be clothed with that kind of power. Power of the Holy Spirit. This is more powerful than the nuclear bomb. You know, the explosive power of a nuclear bomb. We will have that kind of power. And we will rise above the power level of the nuclear bomb. Just think about that. And here, I would associate dunamis power with supernatural revelation, even languages and articulation, angelic sounds and, and languages, power and manifestations, which Paul gave us a glimpse of in chapter 12 when he talked about spiritual gifts. He talked about supernatural revelation, knowledge, wisdom, and discernment, supernatural language, tongues, and interpretation of tongues. He talked about supernatural power for faith and healing and miracle. Okay? He says, we only prophesy in part, we know only in part. That's in the present. But he says in chapter 13, but when completeness happens, that is, tell us the end, the fulfillment happens, then the parts disappear. And then we shall see face to face. Now we know only in part, but I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. Think about the power and the intensity of the supernatural that will happen. Have you noticed that in Hollywood, all these movies are coming out that has to do with Superman and super figures from extraterrestrial beings, aliens coming in, and they're all talking about something super, right? And I don't think that they are that far off from the reality that we are going to experience on that day of Christ's coming. You know, all these super, you know, we have this longing. The human beings have this longing for hero figures. We got to go beyond our limited, you know, earthly, sickly, weekly, bodily form. We have to rise above that. So we have all these fantasies. But let me tell you, they are pretty much fantasies in the present. Unless they come to Christ. And when they come to Christ, they're going to realize that Christ's power is going to enable them to do the miracles and signs and wonders. I totally believe that. But even that is limited. We're not going to be able to heal all the sick. Even Jesus didn't do that in his days, in the first century. Even the apostles did not just vacate all the leper colony or, or hospitals. They didn't do that. They only did the things that they were supposed to do. But that's talking about the potentiality that's within us. But that potentiality is going to explode on that day and it'll, it'll become reality. We're going to be able to do the things that is unimaginable. So when you're watching all these superhero movies, remember, that's in the future. You guys are fooled and you're in fantasy because you're thinking that's now. And we are getting even more fooled by this notion of virtual reality and metaverse where they're creating fantasy world that is supplicated by the imitation of us, avatars. 
You know, I heard that there's Avatar 2 movie coming out. You know, I'm looking forward to seeing that. But that's fantasy about this lame man who has to have his avatar playing this kind of hero figure in this fantasy world. But that's all fantasy. But I'm wondering whether even the people of the world are dreaming about the future. But they can't enter into that future with Jesus Christ unless they give their lives to Jesus Christ. That only happens by the power of the Holy Spirit. But we have that. We have that inheritance. We have the power. Second aspect of the nature of the spiritual body is that this is actually the heavenly body. This is, he talks about the heavenly state. Verses 45 to 49. So it is written, the first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam, a life-giving spirit. The spiritual did not come first, but the natural, and after that, the spiritual. The first man was of the dust of the earth. The second man is of heaven. As was the earthly man, so are those who are of the earth. And as is the heavenly man, so also are those who are of heaven. And just as we have borne the image of the earthly man, so shall we bear the image of the heavenly man. Some theologians have gotten fascinated with this notion of heavenly man. And some have even conjectured that this heavenly man means that Jesus was a man in heaven who came down to earth. Kind of like a, it's kind of like a, a version that is espoused by the Mormons. You know, that God himself had a body. You know, and therefore we, having the body, all we need to be is glorified and re realize our divinity. And we can become like Jesus. Even the Father has a body. But so some theologians have conjectured that this means that Jesus, his origin is in heaven, but he is heavenly man. He already had a body in heaven, and he simply descended here on earth in the earthly form. But that's not what Paul is meaning here. He's not talking about heavenly man as a reference that Jesus bodily originated from heaven. It simply means that his resurrected body is of heavenly material. You know, that is, his, his source is spiritual in nature. He is distinguishing the man of heaven, heavenly man, versus man of the dust of the earth. That's Adam. So if Adam is of substance of the earth, then Jesus' resurrected body is the substance that is perfectly suitable for heavenly life. Or you might even say, everything in heaven is made out of that material. So human beings are made of earthly material. Jesus incarnated into the earthly realm, and he became just like us, having the earthly material. But then Jesus died of the earthly material. He rose into the substance of the heavenly material, and the promise is that we will also rise on that day and we will be transformed into that heavenly material or that heavenly state. So this ultimately means that when we bear the image of Christ, that he is simply the prototype of the heavenly bodily being, that he is showing the way. This is what happens through the transformation and the process of resurrection that you will all be prepared for heaven. And that is the image that I want to proclaim to you. Then the final aspect of the nature of the spiritual body is that it will be a sort of eternal kingdom type of body. Eternal kingdom. Not just the earthly kingdom, 
not just the present kingdom, not even the best of the kingdom that we find in this created order, but we're talking about the ultimate, eternal kingdom body. In verse 50, Paul says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Just plain flesh and blood, that's just a common way, lingo, of saying, you know, the earthly organic form. Okay. In this sinful world, everything is being corrupted. Everything is being degenerative. And therefore, that kind of state cannot inherit the kingdom of God. He's saying that we have to inherit something spiritual that is imperishable, and that's the type of body that is suitable for the kingdom of God that is in heaven. So what is kingdom of God? Kingdom of God is simply this. It's the eschatological state, which is heavenly. But according to the theology of people like George Ladd, a great New Testament scholar, that the kingdom of God, which is eschatological and which is heavenly, has actually penetrated into our present. And that power is the power of the Holy Spirit. Remember, eschatology means the end, heavenly means above. All that is above and the end has actually penetrated by the Holy Spirit into our present, which is earthly, which is related to the past history. But it is the power of the Holy Spirit which enhances us and makes us rise into that level and prepares us for that future eschatology. So he talks about the flesh and blood as the earthly existence of human weakness. And he talks about the perishable, that is our fallen state, our deteriorating condition, which the scientists would say law of entropy, that everything is actually uh, falling apart. Everything is becoming chaotic. It's becoming a mess. It's against the law of evolution, which says everything by nature with due time, with billions and billions of years of existence, we're somehow, we'll figure out somehow, we'll evolve into the higher state, which is nonsense, okay? according to the second law of thermodynamics. And I studied this uh, as a student in mechanical engineering in my college days. And I realized, wow, the second law of thermodynamics clearly affirms the fact of the fallen state of the earthly and universal existence. And so, um, what Paul is saying here is, okay, you want to go to heaven? You want to you exist in the realm of the kingdom of God where Christ is ruling? Well, then you're going to have to uh, prepare yourself by having a complete different state of mind and body, literally. And so your body being transformed into that spiritual body is exactly the type of body that is qualified to inherit the kingdom. And what is that body? What do we mean by the spiritual body? How do we become the spiritual body? I'm going to reserve for the rest of the message on this for next week, but I want to give you a little clue and hint. I believe that the spiritual body actually is a replication of the, the physical body or the, the earthly body that we have but it is heightened or it is enhanced. In other words, God takes the materials of this earth and materials of our psyche and all that, and He upgrades it by billionfold. Just think of that. 
And, and so it's like, it's like uh, atom bomb, nuclear bomb. You know, the, all the elements are there. It's just that they had to find this heavy element, uh, plutonium or uranium, and then they have to either, you know, split the atoms or either they have to fuse the atoms. Whatever it is, it's that material. But once that explosion happens, the power is unimaginable. It's kind of like that. Our materials are there, but it, we have not realized the potentiality of all these elements. And that's why God has to do some supernatural work of intervention by the power of His Holy Spirit. But once that touch is made, I believe there's going to be an explosion of our reality. And that's what even the New Agers are predicting even now. They're talking about explosion of new ideas and new potentiality power, new technologies, uh, new uh, uh, realities that's even coming from outer space. And they're talking about all that. How do you think they got that idea? Well, maybe they're in, their, in some kind of dream state where they're imagining what God is going to do in the future. But it's not going to happen to them because they don't have Christ. For us who have Christ, we have the Spirit of God, who is the Spirit of resurrection. And that can potentially happen to us, but it cannot happen to the full, fullness. It, that can only happen when Jesus comes. So if we were to compare all the powers and signs and wonders that we experience here on earth by the power of the Holy Spirit compared to what we're going to experience on that day when Jesus comes, I think it's like one to a billion, billion, you know, uh, of comparison. But we make such a big deal about, you know, healing happening or this miracle happening in there. But okay, we can be content with the, that in the present. But in the future, that will be nothing. That's just a sign. Sign and an indication of what would be possible for us in that heavenly state. And so, having said all this, what am I trying to say? I'm trying to say that you and I, we belong to the kingdom. We belong to the king. We belong to the spirit of God. We belong to all this realm that is of the heavenly state that is being prepared for us. And how do we live here in the present? You know, no better than any common Joe or Mary out there. You know, in our frail, weak state, this is who I am. I'm a Christian, but doctrinally speaking, I, yeah. Now we go to church, we pray, and we do. We, we're so just common, ordinary Joes that uh, has no power at all. So that in the same type of situation that is given to the worldly people and us Christians, there's no difference. Except, I hope God knows what He's doing and He'll handle this. Well, God knows what He's doing. He will handle it to a degree. But He expects us to cooperate with Him and participate in this vision of the Holy Spirit empowering us to do the things that is unimaginable. We just don't have that kind of vision. We're so short-minded about what is possible in Christ. And that's what saddens me, that we are really no different from the people of the world. And that's why the people of the world run after these fantasy hero figures. What if they are able to see the heroes in us who, who exemplify Christ's likeness and what the apostles and prophets did in the days of old? What if they were able to witness that? Then wouldn't they be drawn to us and drawn to the church 
and drawn to Jesus Christ as a result of that. But what should motivate us to think like this? Well, this kind of theology, this kind of understanding of what is in store for us, but that in store for us may be manifested like that on the day, but the same Spirit is dwelling inside of us. It's the same Spirit. It's the same resurrection power Spirit of God inside of us. And what do we have to show forth? Nothing. We're just waiting for the day when I die and hopefully I meet the Lord and that will explode on the day. Well, I think the Holy Spirit wants to explode now. Little spurt here, little spurt there, little spark there, little spark there. So I'm not comparing the intensity or, or the extent of Holy Spirit ministry to the second coming of Jesus Christ. Of course not. But I'm just saying that I would like to tap even that little bit of a percentage of that explosive nuclear power of the Holy Spirit in our lives in the present. So my exhortation to you is, wherever you are, whatever you're doing, maybe you're a, a student, maybe you're a, a working person in the office, maybe you're a housewife, uh, maybe you're doing some administrative work for some company, maybe you're a visionary in a missions organization, Maybe you're a professor at a seminary or pastor. Or maybe you're just a little child, just uh, you know, going through the grade school. Whatever it may be, we have the dunamis power of the Holy Spirit. And we have the doxa radiating through the Holy Spirit in and through us. Because Jesus even promised that we are the light of the world. We are the light that must be manifesting Christ to the world. And how is that going to happen? Unless we come to terms with what kind of power we have, what kind of glory we have, what kind of amazing God and the Lord Jesus and the Spirit of God who is with us. So next week, I'd like to um, close this section on the short series on the theme of resurrection by talking about how that transformation actually happens on that day. I want us to imagine how that transformation happens so that our dead bodies will certainly experience this transformation into the heavenly bodies. Amen? Amen. Amen. Let's pray.